My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Church. As you're getting seated, as you're getting settled, uh, if you would turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to John chapter 17. We're going to be um, in J- John chapter 17 this morning. And we're going to talk today about church unity. We're going to talk today about how to stay in relationship with someone who believes differently than you do. We're going to talk this morning about how to handle a hard conversation or why we should handle even a hard conversation with someone who has a different background than us, who looks different than us, someone who has a different life experience than us. And I'm not saying that Jason went on vacation specifically for this week. He is a savvy veteran, though. I wouldn't put it past him. No, I'm, uh, Jason and Kim are, are getting some time away, which is much deserved, very overdue, excited for them. And I'm actually really looking forward this morning to getting into this passage, uh, really looking forward to, to diving into John chapter 17. Um, I don't have any, any funny anecdotes or any good preacher stories to start. We're, gonna just gonna, we're just going to jump right in. And the context of where we find ourselves in John chapter 17 in the second half is actually really important. So let's remember where we are in the story of Jesus. We are at the Last Supper, the Easter week, Holy Week. We are on Thursday night. Jesus is gathered in the upper room with his disciples. Okay, this is the same moment, the same meal, the same uh, evening where he's washed their feet at the beginning of, of the time together. He has, uh, they've eaten the Passover meal together. He's broken the bread. He's blessed the cup. Uh, he, he's introduced communion to them. This is all happening this, this night. He's, he's dismissed Judas to go do what Judas needs to do, and Jesus knows what's coming next. He knows. He knows that G- Judas had to leave to go finish the conspiracy of getting Jesus' murder all set up. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that at this point tomorrow, he would be dead. And so Jesus knew that this was his last opportunity. This is his last moment with the 11 disciples that are left. Before the world changes forever, this is his last time with them. And so what he says to them, how he prays here in John 17, is actually really important. It's always good to pay attention to what Jesus says, but it's especially important here where the intensity, the emotion is is ratcheting up. Jesus is feeling the tension from all sides. The pressure, the poignancy of the moment really matters as we understand what's happening in John 17. Last week, Jason uh, started with the first half of this prayer. This is the same prayer that, Jesus, uh, that Jason talked about last week, same breath, we're just, we just stretched it over two weeks. And last week, Jason reminded us of the reality that as a Christ follower, we live in a world that we are not of. We are in this world, but not of this world. But as Christ followers, we are absolutely for this world. As ambassadors of Christ, we are for this world. And this week, we're going to see, we're going to answer two questions together. First question is, how did Jesus pray? And the second question is, so what does that teach us about how to pray? Two questions this morning. So the first question is, how did Jesus pray? And our first point this morning is, Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you. In preparing for this morning, I asked um, a few friends who are a lot smarter about the Bible than I am um, to confirm because, and, and they did this, as far as I can tell, as far as I can find, this is the only time where you appear in the Bible, like directly. Look at, look at verse 20. Let's read this together. 
I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Jesus prayed for you. Remember where we are, intense pressure, he knows what's coming, and he took that moment to pray for you. Jesus cares about you. He is for you. He is for you. Jesus is for you. If that's all you need to hear this morning, if that's all you need to remember from church, that's fine with me. Go get a cup of coffee. You're done. God is for you. God is not working against you. Jesus prayed for the, not just for the disciples that are gathered around the table. Jesus prayed for all the believers who would ever come into the future. And even if you're not following Jesus yet, he is already for you. But I think it's, it can be easy for some of us, myself included, it can be easy sometimes to, to kind of put God in this category of someone who did a nice thing for us a long time ago, and yet I'm not really sure how that connects to my day-to-day. Like, I'm thankful for what happened a long time ago by this really generous person, but I don't know how that connects to what I'm doing here day-to-day. At the college that I went to, they had a scholarship fund that was set up for like a certain group of students, and every year they'd have this ceremony where they would, they would honor the students that were receiving the scholarship money. And one year they invited me to come, uh, not to receive the money, but uh, to play, to play some music for the ceremony. And so I went, and I, as I was getting set up, there was like a, a big easel at the front of the room. And on this display, on this easel, was a big picture, and it was a picture of like a really old guy, like really old, like, like before, like not even just black and white, like before it was legal to smile in pictures, that's when this picture was from, just this brr, old guy. And so I asked somebody, like, what, what is the deal with the picture? It was, it was front and center, it was like lit up, like what is the deal with the picture? And they said, oh, that's so-and-so that gave the money like decades ago that's still being paid out in the scholarship fund. I thought, well, that's, that's generous, but this is going to be kind of an awkward ceremony. Like, what are the students supposed to do with this guy? Just like walk by and like wave and say thank you to the picture? And I think sometimes we kind of treat God like that. Like, thank you, you did a thing for us a long time ago, and yet I don't know what I'm supposed to do with you now. Or we don't even know or realize or believe that God would want anything to do with us now. But there is a relationship available to each of us. We get to have the power of the Holy Spirit within us every day, leading us, challenging us, guiding us through life. Every day that you wake up with breath in your lungs is a day that God has made for you to be with him, to be close to him. He wants to have a relationship with us. He cares for us. He prayed for you, you in particular. He prayed for you in his moment of great distress. And so our first point this morning is that Jesus prayed for you. And our second point as we look at the text is that Jesus prayed for you to be in unity with other followers of Jesus. Jesus prayed for you to be in unity with other followers of Jesus. Let's look at verses 20 through 22. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. Jesus prayed for you to be in unity 
with other followers of Jesus. Unity. What a novel concept that we would be unified, not the same, not standardized, not uniform, unified. And Jesus prayed that we would be unified in the same model as he and God were unified. And God's model is unified diversity, unified diversity. See, as we get into our text this morning, we have to talk for a minute, we get to talk for a minute about the Trinity, the Trinity. And the Trinity is the term that we as humans use to be able to to start to grasp the mystery of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and how they function and relate to each other. That God is, is, is three distinct beings and yet one at the same time. That, that all, all of them are fully 100% God within themselves and yet able to uh, relate to each other and be distinct from each other. Unified diversity. That is God's model. That's how God works. And, and in the same way that this is God's model, this is also one of God's mysteries. It's one of God's mysteries. So let me tell you this morning, I know that a lot of people struggle with the Trinity. I don't understand this. I don't, I don't get it. How does it work? Let me tell you this morning, it's okay if you don't understand everything about the Trinity. Me neither. It's okay. You can always learn more, and you should. And my encouragement to you is to keep digging in. Keep seeking to understand. Keep asking God for peace about this. You can always learn more, but you will never fully grasp the Trinity. But that is God's model. That's how God works, and that's how Jesus is praying for us to work as well. Jesus prays that our our unity would be modeled on his unity with God the Father, distinct and diverse and yet united on what matters. See, there is a core foundation of truth about who Jesus is, about who God is. There's core foundation of truth that we as followers, we have to agree on to be able to follow Jesus together. There is truth about who God is, about how he made the world, about how we relate to him, how we relate to each other. There is core, absolute truth about God. The world will tell us, especially in our day today, the world will tell us that you have your truth, I have my truth, and as long as we don't fight about that and we accept each other's truths, that that's unity. And I'm not trying to be funny when I say, that's not true. That's not true. There is absolute truth about who God is. There's absolute truth that we agree on and that we stand together on. And I'm not trying to make this a commercial for what we do here, but we actually lead a class that's called Core Beliefs, where we talk about this. I think the next one's coming up here later in the summer. And in Core Beliefs, we, we, we take a number of weeks to walk through in, like in a more robust and relational conversation these truths that we stand on, the foundation of truth that we stand on, and how we stay united on those things. See, we can be united on what matters but at the same time, celebrate the diversity of how God made us. We can be united on what matters and at the same time celebrate the diversity of how God made us. We can keep the best parts of how God designed each and every one of us individually because that's the model of the Trinity. That's the model of the Trinity. We can come to the communion table with someone who looks different than we do. We can do that. 
We can be in loving community, loving fellowship with someone who voted for a different candidate than we did. We can do that. We can be in a small group with someone who prefers different styles of worship music than we do. We can do that. Because if we are united on the core essentials of our faith, then it's actually a wonderful, powerful testimony to who God is that he could take a bunch of misfits like us and make us one. Only God can unify us. Only God can take rich and poor, black and white, conservative and progressive, doctors and dropouts. Only God can make us complete. Only God can make us whole together. Only a loving, creative, grace-filled, powerful God can accomplish this. And yet we've gotten this wrong much more than we've gotten it right. We've taken what was supposed to be a feature of the church and we've looked at it like it's a flaw. It was supposed to be this unique marker of the church that we could love people who are different than us. That we could sit at the same table with someone who disagrees with us. That we could stay in relationship with people from a different background that we're from. We could stay united on the essentials and celebrate the diversity of the non-essentials. That's how it's supposed to work. And yet, historically, we've been in the practice of splitting and dividing much more than we've been in the practice of unifying. We've split our churches over how to take communion. We've split our churches over how to baptize and who gets to be baptized. We've split our churches over who gets to lead and who has to follow and how that leadership works. We've split our churches over whether worship music should include drums and rock songs or pianos and hymns only. And we've divided ourselves into churches, churches for the, for the rich folks, churches for the poor folks. We divided ourselves into black churches and white churches. We divided ourselves into churches for the people who, who kind of look like they've got it going on and people that are looking a little messy. We've divided ourselves into old people churches and young people churches, progressive churches, conservative churches, we've split and we've split and we've divided and we've divided. And for generations, we have completely ignored Jesus' prayer for us. We've acted for decades. You all right, Kim? Okay. You okay? Okay. Good? Okay. It's okay. I'm glad you're okay. Okay, very good. <laughs> we, have, we have acted for generations as if Jesus' prayer wasn't for us, as if somebody else was supposed to pursue unity, as if it was somebody else's responsibility to pursue unity within the church. Maybe someone who's a little more radical could take care of that. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've never experienced division in the church. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never seen a wall go up around things that are non-essential. Perhaps you are here this morning, and everything you've ever done is in pursuit of unity within the church. And if that's true of you, then I say sincerely, thank you. Thank you for your example. But I will remind each and every one of us that just because you didn't break it, 
doesn't mean you can't fix it. Just because you weren't part of breaking it doesn't excuse you from the responsibility of fixing it. See, we've made a mess. We've made a mess of what God has given us. And yet, thank God that he is loving and grace-filled and willing and able to fix the mess that his kids keep making of what he's given them. See, there's a lot that, that we don't agree on. I don't know each and every one of you, but if we sat down with a cup of coffee, I think we would find pretty quickly that there are things that you and I don't agree on. And yet we can stay united around what matters. That shouldn't break our unity. And let me be clear, I'm talking specifically about Community Church of Greenwood. I'm I'm not talking about the church worldwide right now. I'm not talking about the church down the street. I'm talking specifically about Community Church of Greenwood right now. Because we have to be able to disagree and stay together. We have to be able to disagree and stay together. We have to be able to do both things at the same time. Because that is so rare these days. I don't actually know anywhere else in society where that happens. Because as a culture, as a group of people, we've lost the ability to be offended gracefully. To be able to say, you know what, I disagree. I actually see the world differently than that. But let's talk, because I'd love to know where you're coming from. No, the more common response these days when we get offended or when we hear something that we don't agree with or doesn't feel right to us in the moment, the more common response is to simply say, get your things, we are out of here. We're going. Another common response is to simply cancel and to say, we are done with that person, we're done with that relationship, we're done with that institution, we're done with that organization. We have to be able to do both things at the same time, to disagree and to stay together. Because to walk away or to cancel someone else, that's easy. That is so much easier than it is to pursue unity. It's easier, let's just be honest, it's easier to walk away when we disagree with something than it is to be empathetic, than it is to listen to someone else's pain, to be quiet for a minute and to understand where they are coming from. Look at verse 22 again. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. See, we have the glory of God. We have the glory of God. Jesus uh, takes the glory that he's been given and he puts it on us. We have the power of God. We have the ability, the opportunity to have radical unity with people in the church that we don't actually agree with on everything. That is the glory of God. And yet, what do we do with that gift? We take it off and we pick up this cheap substitute, this cheap substitute that's called comfort. Let's be honest It feels better in the moment to choose comfort over a hard conversation. It feels better in the moment to choose comfort over a challenging relationship in the name of unity. And unfortunately, it's easier to pack up and leave and go to another church that fits my desires a little better or or where everyone looks a little bit more like me than it is to go the other way and to celebrate the diversity of what God is doing among people who are a little bit different than each other. We have to be okay 
We have to be okay. And let me just say it this way. We're going to be okay being in community with people who are different than us. We're going to be okay. We have to be okay staying in community with people who are differently or who think differently than we do. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Church, don't trade the glory of God for the cheap substitute of surrounding yourself with people who make you comfortable. Don't trade the glory of God for the cheap substitute of surrounding yourself with people who will make you comfortable. It's not what Jesus wants for you. It's not what Jesus wants for me. And it's not what Jesus wants for this church. Because it's not just about what happens here in this room. It's not just about us. If our second point was that Jesus prayed for you to be in unity with other followers of Jesus, then as we look at our text this morning, our third point has to be that Jesus prayed for you to be in unity with other followers of Jesus for the sake of the world around us. For the sake of the world around us. Let's look at verse 21 again. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. So that the world will believe you sent me. I'm not making this up. I'm just letting Jesus' words guide us this morning. Let's look at at the rest of the text, starting in verse 23. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want those, these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you love me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. And then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. What is the point of unity? What's the point? The point of unity among believers in the church who are diverse from each other is to reflect the glory of God to an unbelieving world. The whole point is to reflect the glory of God to an unbelieving world. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The point is not so that we can all agree and hold hands and hum along and make our own little world a better place. Church, we have to be one. We have to be one because there is a world out there that is searching in every corner for hope. There is a a community that we live in full of people who are trying to find a truth that they can trust. We go to school with, we go to work with, we live next to, we play ball with, we go to drop off and pick up lines with people who desperately want more than anything to have a connection with someone else that is meaningful and lasting and uplifting. And we have experienced all of that here. We have all of that here. And so instead of like you know, holding hands and, and, and like huddling up and keeping the big, bad, scary world away, we have to start turning our posture outward. We have to start turning our posture to the world. Imagine a football team. Imagine this fall in the first game of the year, the Colts start the game and they huddle up. And once the offense has the play, they all turn to the defense and they say, hey, hey, come over here. We have an awesome play drawn up. I think you're going to love this. This is amazing. I want you to see what we've got. 
That doesn't make any sense on the football field. I, I know that much about football. That doesn't make any sense on the football field, but that's kind of what we're, what we're called to do here. We've got to start posturing ourselves to say, hey, hey, we've got something over here. I think we've got something that's working. Hey, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. The world should be able to look at the unity that we have with each other and say, Jesus is the way to God, and God loves me. That is the point of our unity. What an incredible testimony to the world that we can have. We must be one so that the world can find the hope that they aren't finding anywhere else. And yet I think that the world has a different expectation of us. I think that the world looks at the church and has an expectation of arguing, division, fighting, arrogance, pride over being how, you know, how right we are. And I can understand why that expectation would be there. I can understand that. The last two years have not been a great witness for the church in America. The last two years have not been a great witness for the church in America, and I'll, I'll include myself in that as much as anybody. It is, it is heartbreaking. It's, it's staggering how much fighting and division and name-calling and line-drawing has, has gone on inside the church over things like masks and vaccines and should we shut down and should we open up. It is heartbreaking. I don't know that I could say on the whole that we have led with love in the last two years. But if our heart posture is not to be loving, then we're not pursuing unity in the church. We have to be united with each other in love so that we can see and share the hope of Jesus together. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. If we remember the context of what Jesus is praying here, if we remember the context of the scripture, the context of the moment, and we rewind the videotape just a little bit, earlier in the dinner, as Jesus is sitting around eating with his disciples, Jesus tells them something that's critically important. Critically important. He tells them that the world will know you are my followers. The world will know you're on my team. The world will know you're my kids by how you love each other. It's the way that you love each other that will be a witness to the world. And I think I need to be reminded I think all of us need to be reminded that Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers by how correct your doctrine is. Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers by your ability to explain deep theological concepts. Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers by how well you correct someone who is wrong on social media. Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers if you vote for the elephant. Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers if you vote for the donkey. Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers by how well you put yourself together before you come to church every morning. Jesus did not say, they will know you are my followers by how much you give to the church. Jesus did not say, they will know you're my followers by how many good deeds you do. Jesus did not say, they will know you're my followers if you put your church bumper sticker on your car. They will know you are my followers by your love. Love actually really matters. 
it really matters that we love each other. It makes a world of difference, not just in this room, that we love each other. How we love each other matters. So the question this morning is, so what does that teach us about how to pray? What does Jesus' prayer in John 17 teach us about how to pray? And I think the answer is actually very simple. If we're going to earnestly ask Jesus, teach us to pray, teach us to pray, then the answer is that we have to pray for unity through loving relationships. That's how we get unity, through loving relationships. This week, I'm going I'm to challenge myself to pray this very simple prayer every morning. And I would invite you to do this with me. Every morning, I'm going to start my day this week by simply praying this simple prayer of submission, of saying, God, I can't affect the change that I want to see, but I believe that you can. I can't actually transform things, but I believe you can, God. And the simple prayer is this. God, turn my division into unity. Turn my separation into relationship. Turn my fear into love. And I would invite you this week to join me just every morning praying this prayer. I'm going to pray this for myself. I'm going to pray this for this church. I'm going to pray this for our world. Because I wonder what God will do through us if we turn our hearts into this posture. I wonder what God will do in our community if we begin to be one and unified through loving relationships. Let's pray together now. God, turn my division into unity. Turn my separation into relationship. God, turn my fear into love. God, turn Community Church of Greenwood's division into relationship. Turn Community Church of Greenwood's separation into relationship. Turn Community Church of Greenwood's fear into love. God, turn our world's division into unity. Turn our world's separation into love. God, turn our world's fear into love. Amen. Next to your seat, you should have a little cup of juice with some bread on the top. If you would, go ahead and take that out now. In in thinking about the context of our scripture today, like I said, the, the moment really actually matters a great deal when and where Jesus says what he says. And like I said, if you rewind the tape back on that evening and you start at the beginning when they come into the room, Jesus, Jesus does this thing which is very odd. It's very odd. Well, it's very odd to us in the 21st century, but it's, it wouldn't have been odd to them. Jesus actually gets down on his feet and he, or on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. And that's not a, that's not a metaphor. Jesus actually got a, a towel and a bowl and some water and he literally washed their feet. And this was, a, this was a, an act of, of service. This was an act of love, a demonstration of Jesus' love for them. And as we, as we come to the communion table this morning, in just a minute, we're going to take communion together. We're going to bind ourselves in unity and proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to take this to proclaim that he is coming again. As we do that, though, I, 
I want us to think about who gets invited to Jesus' table? Who gets invited to eat with Jesus? Because he sets the guest list. He makes the invite. This is his table. There that night in the room with Jesus were some people who you would expect to be close to Jesus. You know, you had Peter. I mean, Peter, you know, the church is built on Peter. You had John, you had Matthew, you know, these, these pillars of the faith, right? But over here in this corner, you had Thomas. And Thomas is an interesting story because Thomas, I have a lot of compassion for Thomas. Uh, Thomas had an embarrassing moment, probably one that he would like to have back. And unfortunately for Thomas, it got recorded in the most popular book of all time. If you, if you don't know the story of Thomas, there was a moment where Thomas doubted he didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So I, I wonder that night as Jesus was, was crawling around on his knees, washing his disciples' feet, what he thought when he got to Thomas' feet. See, Thomas got an invite to the table. And there was moments where he didn't believe. And if Thomas is over here at this other end of the table, or actually right next to Jesus, is Judas. And this is very intriguing to me. This is, um, I don't know what to do with this. That Jesus knew what Judas was up to. You know, Judas's, Judas's facilitation of Jesus' murder was not a, it was not a crime of passion. It was not a quick thing. You know, it was, it was, the Jews would not have killed Jesus themselves. They actually had a plan to make the Romans want to do it. They had to kind of facilitate it that way. And so Judas was, this was going on for a while in Judas's heart. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew that Judas didn't like him. Jesus knew that uh, Judas wasn't just ambivalent about Jesus, that, that Judas was working actively to kill him. And yet, Jesus bent down, he picked up the feet of his murderer, and he scrubbed between the toes. And he washed the bottoms of his feet, the tops of his feet. Jesus also knew that, that Judas, in just a few hours later, would be overcome with guilt for what he had put in place, and he would actually kill himself. Jesus knew that those feet wouldn't be in use a whole lot longer, and yet Jesus wanted to clean them. And I, it doesn't make any sense to me, honestly, that Jesus would wait until much later in the evening to tell Judas, now's the time for you to go. You need to go do what you're going to do. Why didn't Jesus do that before they washed the feet? Why did, why did Jesus wait until the meal was already going and, and a lot of it was over? Why did Jesus invite Judas to sit and eat with him? I don't have a great answer other than Jesus is the one who decides who sits at his table. Jesus is the one who decides who gets to eat with him. And so this morning, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to take this together. And if you don't believe if this is new for you, if you're not sure that this is, this is what you believe, it's okay to not take this with us. I would encourage you. If you're not ready to proclaim what this means, it's okay. You can be here and not believe. We're not thrown off by that. We're okay. We love the fact that you're here. We don't want you to stay there forever. But it's not going to bother us if you don't take communion. In fact, you won't be the only one not taking communion this morning. But if you... If you have ever thought to yourself, I am not 
worthy to sit at Jesus' table. I need to get myself cleaned up a little bit more before I come to Jesus. Let me just encourage you this morning, don't put a barrier between yourself and God that Jesus has already wiped away. He invited his murderer to dinner. I think he's going to handle you okay. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. He is the one that does the washing. I would also encourage us, though, if we are sitting here this morning and we're looking around the room, we're looking down the row and we're thinking, I don't think that person should be taking communion. I don't think they should be participating with us. Don't put a barrier between someone else and God that Jesus has already wiped away. Don't put a hoop to jump through for someone else that Jesus has already taken care of. I don't set the guest list at Jesus' table. He invites who he wants to invite. And so if you are wanting to take communion with us this morning, I would invite you to take the bread. On that night, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he explained that this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And later on, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Let's pray together. God, we are, we are bound together with one another. We are bound together in your name. God, you are the one who cleans us. You are the one who makes us whole. You are the one who makes us united. God, we don't want to live in division anymore. We don't want to live in separation anymore. We don't want to live in fear anymore. And that is, that is a transformation that you can do. God, we submit ourselves to you. God, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you are continuing to do day in and day out in the life of this church and the individuals who are gathered here this morning. God, we praise your name. God, bind us together and bind us to you. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.